I was reminded this week uh, that the Christmas season is one of those times of the year where we, we really kind of embrace tradition, don't we? seems to be one of those times when nostalgia is kind of in. You know, I, I had a meeting this week uh, over in Clinton. I met a, a uh, state leader of a national ministry organization. We met over there for coffee, and it's been a long time since he'd been in Clinton, and he, he noticed that the, the Strand Theater was showing It's a Wonderful Life, you know? Now, how long has that movie been out? Like 200 years or something? You know, and, and he said, oh, my wife would love to see It's a Wonderful Life on the big screen. Maybe I'll bring her back, and we'll, you know, we'll go to the movies, and we'll go get some Thai food or whatever. And, and you know, and, and, and if we really boil down, I mean, how many of you who've got older children now are going to have some macaroni-painted um, ornaments on your tree this Christmas, right? We got a few of those left, right? Our baby is 26, almost 26, and we're going to have some macaroni that he sprayed with gold paint back when he was three hanging on the Christmas tree, right? I mean, we, we, we get into nostalgia, right? I mean, I'll confess, if, if, if I could catch Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer on, I'd watch it, even though I was there by myself, right? You know, and some of you were waiting for the miracle on 32nd Street or whatever it is to, to come on. And say, You know, we, we kind of get in tradition, traditions, and that's really kind of true of churches as well, right? You know, we have a church in our region that every year they make a, a big deal. It's one of their traditions. They make a big deal out of doing a living nativity for a series of nights. And they do it very well. And I happened to see their sign this morning in the center of Sterling advertising. It's up in, in Westminster. And they, and they do a, a wonderful job with it, you know. But that's their tradition. You know, my sister told my wife yesterday that she's going to go up. She's going to a Christian college in Oklahoma to get her nursing degree, you know, after retiring as a missionary. And she's going to go over to the college this afternoon for the hanging of the greens, you know. Another Christmas tradition that goes with, with certain... Um, elements of, of, of Christianity. And, and, and so we, we get into the season where we get into nostalgia, we get into tradition, and, and we experience that somewhat in our own church. I mean, we, we've developed a habit of doing the Advent wreath, and we read through the certain scriptures, and some of us, we just have scriptures we love to fixate on at Christmas time, like joy to the world, you know, you know, um, you know and, and the, as the angels announced that, you know, peace to men on earth, or as... as um, was read for us earlier out of Isaiah 9, you know, and the virgin shall be with child and shall give birth and she shall call him Emmanuel. And the list just kind of goes on and on. Or, or um, you know, and, and, and she gave birth to a son and she wrapped him in swaddly clothes and put him in a manger, right? And we, we get into the parts of the story and, you know, I, I, I guess nostalgia and tradition in many ways are a good thing. And I'm not, I don't have any heart to try to condemn that or to, to push back on it or whatever. But I do have a little bit of a concern sometimes. And this is true for me. And it's also true for you. That as we celebrate traditions, it breeds some familiarity. And sometimes in the midst of that, in our familiarity, we, we began to... We can, we can have a tendency sometimes to blur the significance of or in some ways maybe lose the... the the, the, the significance of what it is that we're truly celebrating. We can have a tendency to trivialize it, right? You know, this is something we do every year, and we just kind of go through the motions, and it feels good, but we really lose the stuff that we're celebrating. And that's one of my concerns when I think about Christmas. And it's one of the reasons why we're doing this series entitled Christmas Matters. 
And our, our tagline with that is this, if you don't get Christmas, you don't get Christ. If you don't understand the significance of Christmas, theologically, if you don't understand what it is that God has really done in the event of Christmas, you really don't get Christ. And if you don't get Christ, you really don't get salvation by faith. And therefore, eternity seems to be off the table. I mean, it all starts with the event that we celebrate that we call Christmas or Advent. And, and here's, here's the point that I want to drive at today. Is that at Christmas, we don't celebrate the birth of an innocent, humble, vulnerable baby boy in a village in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. That's not what we celebrate. We celebrate the eternal, always existent Son of God becoming flesh. Big difference between those two. You know, we, we, we get excited, you know, we, it's the, the innocence, the tranquility, the humility, all those kinds of things, the, the quietness, the, the beauty of just innocent life in a small child in a manger with angels singing above and shepherds coming and the magi showing up and, and we get all this, and, and we but we, we celebrate all that and we, and we, and we celebrate like the, the birth of a boy. That's not what we're celebrating. We're celebrating that one person of the Trinity that has existed forever and will always exist, who is the creator of all that we see, the sustainer that all we see, the giver of eternal life, has come down and taken on human flesh, and in those small little lungs is drawing oxygen into his body. It's being transferred to his cardiovascular system, sent out to his body so he can grow up to be one of us and then die in our place. That's what we celebrate in Christmas. It's not about the birth of a child. It's not about the beauty of new life and all that. That's all great stuff. We can, we can do that at St. Vincent's. But when we come to the manger... <laughs> What we are celebrating is that God has become flesh for us. Now, we could process that a lot this morning. There's a lot about like how that all of that happened, and we can go into the virgin being overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, etc., and all that, and try to make sense of all of that somehow and explain it, you know. But I, I'm just going to build on the fact that the New Testament simply assumes that the man, Jesus Christ, is also the eternal, everlasting Son of God. It just assumes it. It just presents it to us that way. That was the foundation of their faith. It didn't try to explain it kind of all that happened. It's just a reality. And, and, and if you want a greatest symbol of that, it's in communion. I mean, the only reason why we remember the body and the blood of Christ is because it's the body and the blood of the eternal God. That's why it matters. It's just a foundation. But what I do want to kind of hammer at a little bit today is not so much the how and, and how, you know, how is he fully God and fully man and all that kind of stuff. I, 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 want, to, I want to drill in just a little bit on why was it necessary for God to become one of us? Why was the whole scene of Bethlehem, which we've got laid out here, why was that, why was that necessary? Couldn't have God done this some other way? Why was it that the eternal Son of God, who's always existed, 
exists and always will exist, who is the creator of everything that we see, the sustainer of everything we, that we see, who sits with you know, sits at the right hand of the Father as a part of the, the reigning trinity in heaven. Why is it that he needed to become a seven to ten pound baby boy lying in a manger some 2,000 years ago, born to a humble woman and put into a feed trough that a few hours earlier the goats and the cows and the, the donkeys and et cetera were chewing hay out. Why, why was that necessary? And, and I want to take you... Back to the book of Hebrews. We were there last week. I'd love for you to go back with Hebrews to me again today. And um, Hebrews chapter 2, and if you're using one of our pew Bibles and you'll find it underneath your chair, it's on page 1016. I know these aren't traditional Christmas texts, but they get at the heart and the soul of why Christmas matters. The elements, the way God did it, what God was doing is absolutely critical to you and I understanding why it is that you and I are the children of God and we're going to experience eternal life through our faith in Jesus Christ. Because Christmas, the matters of Christmas, the details of Christmas matter because Christmas matters. Now, I don't intend to do a deep dive into this. We're going to look at chapter 2, verses 14 through 18 today. I don't want to do it. I'm not going to do a deep dive. I'm not going to try to pull out every single word and bring out its meaning. I want to point out a couple of major truths that you see in this passage of Scripture that are related to this issue of why was it that God needed to become a man while still being God so that you and I could experience Christmas and Easter and eternity. Just listen to these words. Now, since the children, that's you and I, okay, we're the children, Okay, so now since the children have flesh and blood in common, and that, you know, some of us doubt how much we have in common, we certainly have flesh and blood in common. I think all of us sitting here this morning have beating hearts. If you don't, we have a defibrillator out in the lobby that we can use and, and get you going again, but we all have beating hearts. We have lungs that are taken in oxygen. We're, we have digestive systems that are processing whatever we had for breakfast, and the list goes on and on. It says, now since the children have flesh and blood in common, he shared also in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and to free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring, that's us. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers... That's like us saying guys, referring to men and women, right? He needed to be like his brothers in every way so that he could become a merciful and a faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tested and has suffered, he is able to help those who are tested. Now, as we look at this passage of Scripture, there's some great stuff in here, and, and that's my big theological word. If you've been hanging around Hope Chapel very long, I use the word stuff to refer to a lot of great theological truths. But I, I just want you to see a couple of, couple of things that really emerged out of this. And so the, the first thing I want you to see from this passage is what does this Bible, what does this passage tell us about why the, the incarnation was necessary? And what it tells us is that because you and I are flesh and blood, in order to redeem us, 
In order to make it possible for you and I to have a restored relationship with God, Jesus needed to become flesh and blood. That's the fact. The only way that he could be the mediator of a new covenant that we call the New Testament, of salvation by grace through faith in Christ, the only way he could do it is that he had to become one of us. Why? Because we're all flesh and blood. And therefore, he needed to become one of us. Adam, which Paul describes as being the one who, who was the instrument that brought death into our, our world through his failure, was flesh and blood. Therefore, the new Adam had to be flesh and blood. Now, I, I know I'm talking theological, but, but, but the reason why God needed to show up in the manger in the form of a small baby boy, breathing oxygen, taking in nutrients, doing all those kinds of things, growing physically and emotionally and intellectually. The reason why God needed to do all that stuff is because that's what we had to do. He had to be like us in every way, it says in verse 17. Therefore, he had to be like people, flesh and blood, in every way, like us, so that he could be our redeemer. And that's why Christmas really matters. It's not just a celebration of the birth of a child. It is the celebration of God becoming one of us so that he can redeem us. And he's like us in every way. You know, you could spend a lot of time. Jesus was hungry. Jesus was thirsty. Jesus was hot. Jesus was cold. Jesus was fatigued. I think there are moments when he was angry, justifiably, righteously angry. I think there are moments he was frustrated. Sometimes I think he was probably tempted to think that these are the densest 12 guys that I could ever get together to be my disciples, right? You know, he's just moments he's frustrated. He's annoyed at times, right? He, 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 you know, he experienced joy, and he experienced grief. You know, we see that in his tears at the death of Lazarus, but probably much more so when his cousin... John the Baptist lost his head, and the word came. Jesus experienced grief. He experienced pain. He struggled to control his sexual urges and to use that in a way that was righteous in the eyes of God. He, he was tempted in all ways like us, and probably worse. He is like us in every single way, and the only way he could do that was that God had to become one of us so that he could be a solution to the problem that we had. And, and this passage says, you know, because you and I are flesh and blood, he had to be flesh and blood. Everything that we experience, he had to experience so that he could be our deliverer. Now, the, now, the author of Hebrews, we don't know exactly who that is, he unpacks that just a little bit. So the reason why Jesus had to be flesh and blood, the reason for the necessity was that he had two roles to play. One, and he defines it, and you can see it here in verse uh, 17. He said he was going to be a merciful and a faithful high priest. And secondly, he was going to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, those are probably, those are not common things for us today, right? I mean, not too many of you sat around a breakfast table this morning talking about, well, you know, what, what kind of a high priest was Jesus, right? I mean, we don't really kind of have high priests anymore and that kind of thing. It's just a different... We live in a different era, so we, sometimes we don't appreciate the significance of all of this. But what 
The author of Hebrews, what God is telling us through his word in this book, is that the reason Jesus had to become one of us, to be exactly like us, to have flesh and blood like us, to experience everything that we experience, was because he was going to be a high priest, and he was going to be the one who made propitiation for our sins. So we need to understand those two things. Let me back that up just a little bit. The high priest had a special role in the life of the Jewish people, and that was, in particular, on the Day of Atonement, it was his role to be the mediator, the one who stood between God and man. And it was in that one day of the year that he was able to go into the Holy of Holies and provide a special offering to God so that, so that the nation and all who were a part of the nation, all of the faithful, all of the sons and daughters of Abraham could be forgiven. And in that moment, they did all these special preparations so that he was qualified for that one day to be the person who could stand between God and man. That was his role. The scripture tells us that Jesus is that high priest, but he's a perpetual high priest. He can do that every single day, and he didn't need to make any sense of preparation because he was already qualified because he had no sin. Now, we might not use it, the word high priest. We, you know, we might use a word like he's a mediator or he's an arbitrator, right? Or he's a broker. This is the guy who had the authority to bring the presence of God and all of mankind to the table, and he could force a deal because he was the mediator. He was the, the broker. He, he had the power of attorney for both sides, and he could make this deal happen. That's the role that Jesus came to play. And the reason he's able to do that is because he's fully God and he's fully man. He can bring God to the table because he is God. And he can bring man to the table because he is a man. He's experienced all that man does. And he brings it over and puts it together. And so he can play that role of high priest. It also says that he is the propitiation for our sins, right? Now, again, that's... The, the Bible uses a number of different terms. It uses words like ransom. You know, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It uses the word propitiation. In other ways, it, it talks about paying our debt. In other ways, it, it talks about us being justified. He's the means of our justification. This word propitiation, is, is, it deals more with the, this barrier between man and God. It has much more to deal with the, the relational barrier, that God is angry justifiably so, at his creation that has rejected him as the creator. And so he is angry. He, he has this, you know, and, and so his, his wrath, his anger has to be satisfied. And the one who's able to do that, the one who's able to pay the price, much more so, the one who's able to stand in the midst and take all of the punishment but still live to tell another day is the one who's fully God and he's fully man. And so he's able to bring man and God together because he can bring God to the table, he can bring man to the table because he's both of those, and then that which needs to be satisfied in order for the relationship to be restored, the debt to be paid, the, the, the gap to be closed, he can do that because he is God who can withstand the wrath, but he's also man, but he's the perfect man. And so he's eligible to represent us and to take all of our, our, our debt and our pain. It's, it's an incredible image. And again, we don't, do, we don't think that way a lot and that kind of stuff, but, but he took him who knew no sin, and he made him sin so that you and I could become the righteousness of God 
through Jesus Christ. And so the reason why Jesus needed to become man, why God needed to become man, to be like us is so that he could be both the high priest and he could also be the sacrifice that creates it together. So when you and I celebrate Christmas, we're not just celebrating the birth of a healthy baby boy to a unique girl who's gone through a hard time, and we're not celebrating tranquility and peace and all those kinds of things. Those are all just corollaries. The heart and soul is that we are celebrating that God became man for us. So what does, that, what does that mean? What's the so what out of all those? And as, as I've promised you, I'm going to try to give you the so what's as much as I can as we go forward. Let me give you the first so what. My salvation, your salvation, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, is based in reality. Not, it's not the result of some clever philosophy. It's not the result of a group of guys over, over years or decades or centuries getting together and creating this wonderful big puzzle that somehow or another they crafted all the words they can convince. It's, not, it's based in reality. This is something that has been done. Uh, just a, when Christina and I got a chance to travel to Italy a couple of years ago for our anniversary celebration, I read a book about Cicero. Cicero was kind of an ordinary guy who rose to be like the, the, the statesman politician in Rome. And he actually lived 30 to 50 years before the birth of Christ. And part of what brought him to prominence in the Roman Senate was that he was a tremendous orator. And this, therefore, he was used as a lawyer. And it was interesting, when they went into the Roman courts, it wasn't based on facts. It wasn't based on what was truth. It's whether or not you could create the cleverest the most clever argument and twist your opponent up in some different ways so you could get your defendant off. And so, that, you know, that, and, and Cicero was really good at obscuring the truth <laughs> and harpooning the opposition so his clients often won. And so they were freed by the court system, but that doesn't mean that they weren't guilty. Some of you think that happens in our own court system a lot today, right? You know, if you've got enough money, you can get off kind of idea. It's a very, di- you know... That's not the experience of our salvation at all. It's not just that somehow we've created this clever smoke and mirrors where we've outfoxed or whatever, and we've developed this wonderful thing so that when somebody dies and their casket is stretched out across the front of our our thing, we can feel good about where they're going because we've convinced ourselves about these cliches and truths. That's, That's not what it's about. This is something that's based on fact, it's based on truth. You can depend upon it. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, you have been redeemed, and you're going to spend eternity with God in heaven. It's, it's, it's not just wishful thinking. It's not a clever philosophy. Our salvation is something that is real in Jesus Christ because God showed up in a manger and started drawing oxygen into his lungs. Here's the second truth I want you to get. And this may be very appropriate for some of you this morning. God understands what you're going through, and God can help. Look at verse 18. We haven't really drawn into that at all, but look at verse 18. For since he himself was tested and had suffered, suffered, he's able to help those who were tested. One of the so what's 
of the incarnation, of God becoming one of us, is that no matter what circumstance that you and I are in, whether it's something that's been done to us, something that happened without it being anybody's fault, or something that we did to ourselves, no matter where we're at, God understands and God can help. And, and that's a powerful word to a lot of us. Some of you are, you know, right now, just praise the Lord, you're in one of the best places you've been for years and years and years as an individual, as a family in your journey. Others of you are some of, some of the, having some of the greatest struggles and heartaches that you've been through in a long, long time, maybe in your lifetime. And what Christmas says to us is God can help. God understands. God cares. God's involved. God's present. And God can help. And, 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 and if, if you've lost that sense, let Christmas remind you that God can help. God's present. God cares. He understands. He's been through it. He's been tested. He suffered. He came because he loves, and God can help. He can put it back together. He can heal it. He can use it. He can grow it, and etc. And that really leads me to my next point. Part of what Christmas means is that every single part of our lives is underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ. Even our bodies have value to God. You know, whether it's our minds or whether it's our toenails, right? God, can, God, God cares about and can use it all. You know, um, the early church wrestled a lot with what, what did the incarnation really mean that God became flesh and was he off the, and, and, and one of the arguments that developed was that Jesus was fully man except for his mind his mind was still divine and, and what the church recognized and it was expressed by the name of the, by the name of, a guy by the name of Gregory of Nazanaeus uh, he said you know if it's not assumed it's not healed and what he meant by that is, if Jesus didn't take it on, then it's not redeemed. And so what the, what, what the Scripture is presenting to us is, Jesus became completely like us. Our minds, our hearts, our cardiovascular systems, our knee joints, you know, our toenails, everything in between, you know, his armpits sweated, the whole nine yards. Jesus became exactly like us. And everything can be redeemed and it's all underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, this, this means two things to me. One is, is that there isn't anything going on in your life. There isn't anything that's gone on in your life. There isn't anything that's going to go on in your life in the future that God can't use. God can use it all. God can use it all. Your greatest failures and your greater successes, and everything in between. God can use it all because he's assumed it all. He took it all on for us. And he's Lord of every aspect of our lives, and God can use it. You know, and, and I don't care if, if you, you're struggling with addictions or if you've got great heartache or if you were abused or etc. All those things are, are painful things. God can use it. He can redeem it. He can turn it into something that he can use to bless others. And right, whether we're in, in great marriages, God can use it all because every aspect of our lives is underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ. The second thing it means is that what you and I do with our lives really matters. God has given us this treasure in earthen vessels. The spiritual gifts that he's given you reside inside of your physical bodies for you to use. 
That the insights, the giftedness, the ability to pray, all those kinds of things, is God has planted in your minds. The words that come out of your mouth, all of that stuff matters. Because God is Lord of all. He's taken it all on. He's redeemed it all. He said, all of this, all creation has value in my sight. It matters. And how you use your bodies matters. Great truth. Got one last truth, and then we'll call it a day. It means that you matter because you are a part of the family of God. Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. I think we're going to pull that up on the screen. Is that right? There we go. Listen to what it says. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, seeing that we suffer with him so that he also, so that we also may be glorified with him. Listen, you are the child of God because of Christmas. I know that may sound cliche. You are a co-heir with Christ because of Christmas. Jesus became one of us so that we could be, become a part of the family of God and be co-heirs with Christ for eternity. He became one of us so that he could be this high priest who also pays the price so all of our sin is removed, his righteousness is poured into us so that you and I can be the children of God forever. And that's reality. It's not wishful thinking. Because God showed up in a manger and started drawing breath into his lungs years and years ago. So I have a closing thought for you today. The Apostle John wrote in his first letter, says, this, you know, this is how you know the Spirit of God. This is John chapter 4, verse 2. Every spirit who confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. In other words, if, if you're going to get the spiritual journey going at all, you have to confess. You have to believe. Your spirit inside of you is going to be telling you that God came in the flesh. Is that what your spirit is telling you this morning? Do you believe? Do you understand? Do you live out your life? Do you have the faith that's built on the fact that God showed up and became one of us in the flesh? Because in that is life. And that's why Christmas really matters. Let's pray together. God, I thank you that you care. You've always cared. And you always will care. I thank you for your love. Even if we can't feel it, if we don't sense it, if we don't think we're experiencing it, I give you thanks for your love. Thanks for becoming one of us. Today, Father, we want to yield our spirits to your spirit within us. And we want to confess to you that the Messiah, the Christ, has come in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And we can be changed forever. Thank you, Lord. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen.